Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, outrage continues to pour out over the report on the Red Hill Parkway regarding friction levels. Also, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in the hot seat over a report that Minister Wilson Rabel had resisted pressure from the PMO's office to shelve the proceedings against SNC-Lavalin Group in favor of a settlement without a trial. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, let's get back to the Red Hill story. Uh, as we know now, the outrage is continuing uh, about a report that there was actually a report about safety conditions on the Red Hill uh, some time ago, and about five or six years ago this thing was done. It was never presented to city council, certainly not presented to the public, and, uh, well, we know the, what the fatalities and the number of collisions that have gone on there. Uh, there are some calls on social media right now suggesting that there needs to be some sort of an investigation into this. Now well, let me bring in uh, Ward 4 Councillor Sam Marula. Sam, I know it's a busy day for you. Thanks for jumping in on this today. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, how did you feel when you heard this? For, I know it was a closed-door session, but uh, you have been very upfront about this. I mean, this you know, you, the road goes right down by your ward there. You've got a lot of calls. A lot of constituents have talked about this. Uh, and, and you've been very opinionated about what could be happening and what needs to be done here. Did, did you feel betrayed when you found out that staff, somebody on staff had decided to bury this report? Uh, beyond betrayed, to be honest. We were all shocked and appalled by what occurred. As you know, we, at a time at the city, had a very a very uh, conflict-filled relationship with SMT and staff, and uh, we came a long ways from amalgamation, and the trust factor had increased to such a level um, that I would never remotely publicly question, or even privately for that matter, any of our engineers or professional staff. And because of the fact that um, they are professional and there are staff and they're there to be trusted. But I, want, I do want to start by saying, though, that the road itself is safe if it's used as prescribed. So I think that's an important question that I asked and I received an answer accordingly. It's also important to recognize that because of the geometry of the road, the, the winding nature of it, and when you combine that with wet, a wet road and speed, that's when probability of collisions increase. So, as you probably recall, the geometry itself, the winding nature of it, was to protect the creek for environmental reasons, mm-hmm. which we all supported. The, so, had we made it a straight through and, and, and without realign, with and actually impacting the creek, that would have been something that environmentally, I don't think many people could have supported. So, we did accommodate all of those aspects quite thoroughly. So I think it's important that we emphasize that Council, since 2013, has initiated nearly 10 initiative motions. Myself and Councillor Collins and Councillor Jackson um, worked, have worked diligently and to get those 10 reports. And everything from capital work to uh, in- inclusions uh, to um, safety uh, aspects, such as the, tig- uh, the, the design of the road itself and, and capital expenditures surrounding um, the illumination of the lanes, to photo radar initiatives that we're waiting for from the province, to a motion that we brought forward uh, last year to lower the speed limit to 80 kilometers. And we did all of this because we know that there's a direct correlation between uh, speed and the collisions, and that's what the police told us. So it's not as if um, this road, if used as prescribed, is unsafe. This road is unsafe, and the probability of it being unsafe increases only when it's not used as prescribed. 
So when you compare that to to the link, and you look at the standards, it's lower uh, in standard. And now an important thing that I want to emphasize today too, and I want to thank whoever shared this uh, on on social media, the public works meeting of December seventh, two thousand and fifteen. If people can go online to our eScribe and and tune in to uh, one hour and twenty seven minutes and thirty seconds, what are they uh, going to see? They're going to see questions asked of staff, particularly surrounding this asphalt issue and the answers we received. And the answer we received at the end of my questioning was that the asphalt not only met but exceeded provincial standards. And that was the answer. So, From which staff member? Gary Moore. Who was so, the engineer in charge at that time? That's correct. Okay, so that's that's on record. I mean, obviously, that's what we talked about on the show yesterday. That this is easily easily discoverable. Thirty seconds. It's, yep. it's on record. It's there for everyone to listen to. And I asked him repeatedly, "Is there an issue?" Because we were dealing with perception versus what we believe to be fact, and that being our engineers, our professional engineers, saying there's no issue with the asphalt. Now, is the asphalt issue on its own as a variable? the one contributing factor to accidents? The answer to that is no. There are many variables to it. Is the road safe if used as prescribed? Yes. Is the road, does the road become unsafe if not used as prescribed? And the answer is yes. So all of these variables need to be account, into, taken into account. But the real betrayal is that because we've asked all these questions, because there were so many collisions, because... We, we asked the right questions but never received the right answers is really the betrayal in this entire process. Well, that's, that's the point I wanted to make, and, and, and I'm glad you, that somebody's done the work on that, and I'm glad you pointed that out about where they can actually see this, and I'm sure that, that uh, your staff are going to look into this as well, Sam. But the, the question I would have then, at that day when you were questioning Mr. Moore about the quality of the asphalt, did he have this report? Had he seen this report? What? Well, according to the timing, it would have, because this occurred, the meeting in which these questions occur, uh, happened was December 7th, 2015. Mm-hmm. The report uh, was, uh, we initiated the report to a motion to find out, to have a safe, safety review of the asphalt in 2013. I know, it was a hotly debated issue, I know that. There was a great discussion, and, and I remember talking with city staff, it might well have been Mr. Moore, if I recall, uh, was on this program and said there's the very same thing that he told you at the council meeting, uh, which begs the question, why would he say something like that to you if, in fact, he had a report that indicated otherwise? I can't answer that, um, to be honest with you. All I can basically give you are the facts as we know them, as they can be proven through a documented sources, and you can go back to all of the motions that I brought forward, um, and the asphalt issue came up every single time because, and rightfully so, there was a perception which in essence wasn't the direct correlation to any of the collisions, but one variable that should have been expanded upon to definitively exclude it, which never occurred. And when we asked the questions about the asphalt, we were told that it met or surpassed MTO standards. So I asked directly, do these meet the same standards as the 400 series highways? And he says, yes, it not only meets the standard, it exceeds it. Which was incorrect information. And, exactly. and that's why you guys, I, I, I felt badly for you when I heard this story, because I figured you and, and other counselors have been talking about this, but you could, you're only as good as the information you're given. 
And, and these are the experts, you know. You know the, it, and that's where the trust factor comes in, right? And yeah. that's where, as you know, as you recall, I never trusted any staff when I first got here at Amalgamation. I think a number of us never did, and it, it was an ugly scenario. But over the, over, since then, we developed a, a very cohesive, very consistent, predictable, and very trust-filled environment uh, with our staff. What has uh, this incident done to that trust level? Well, we have some really good people working with us, and uh, we've had really good people working with us. And uh, I think what it does is that it, it, it really does beg the question, why is only one person able to, if they have indeed, allegedly, suppress something of this magnitude? Why isn't that cease, that those studies cc'd to the general manager uh, and others uh, in order that not one person signs off on it? Well, that's one of the questions, obviously, I know you'd like to see answered, and I and certainly would, one, Sam. Who had, on, who had eyes fix. on this report? Who saw this? Yeah, I mean, and that's what one issue we're going to fix, because my understanding is there's only one person that got it, and, and that's just unacceptable. When a report of that type of magnitude comes forward, not only from an expense standpoint, because we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, but just from an openness and transparency standpoint, that nobody can ever individually, unilaterally, decide that any information not be seen. Now, I think that needs to be addressed first and foremost. That's a protocol issue, and I mean, this goes back into responsibilities of what staff should be doing right. uh, and their responsibility towards council, frankly. Exactly, and, and we're going to focus in on that, uh, and that's going to change. And we're also going to have, we, we've already asked for an investigation. I know people, see, initially when I, when I was told I wanted to go over the public inquiry right away, um, as you know, um, we're, we're investigating through our own Auditor General, and, we, mm-hmm. and we've given this individual independent powers under the Municipal Act. Uh, if the report, and, and he was actually very open to the suggestion of a public inquiry as well. So I know people are, from a perceptual standpoint, are concerned about the perception of, of somebody that works for the city investigating. But again, it's only one step towards ultimately uh, having it, or deducing it down to a full and open and transparent process. Sam, let me ask you something, though. Hindsight's twenty twenty. We all know that. But and then getting down the road of speculative, I, I understand that as well. But if you had received that report back in that time when you were asking the, the, the department about those, these very questions, is there a possibility that council might have acted faster and maybe enacted some of these things that you have oh, done over no the last doubt. five years? Oh, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. The moment he, someone would have come and said, because that was the question, is it, a, is it to standard? And if it's not, let's fix it. And we would have moved that immediately. I would have moved it right away to get it done. Um, and probably even considered if, if they said if they said there was a direct correlation between the road and public safety. Firstly, my family travels on that road. I travel on that road. Sure. I, the moment I heard about it, I would we would have acted on it. But there isn't. A, firstly, there isn't a direct correlation just on that one variable. But that that the exposure of that report should have led to another study to to ensure. Now, firstly, it was accurate based on the standards they were comparing it to, and secondly, to expand upon it to deduce it down that down to what needs to occur or what needs to happen to to make to meet the same standard as the link. 
one of the other things that, that comes to mind here, and I know you talked about this extensively during the construction, well, construction just about everything, you've been responsible for a lot of capital projects, is, is the quality of the material. I mean, that which is what you were questioning Mr. Moore about that day the, many years ago, uh, about the quality of the material, not about the design of the road, not even about the speed limit, but the quality. And he assured you at that time that it was above grade quality. This report that well, you guys finally had eyes on the other day says parts of it are not. So it, can you understand the frustration of the of the families of people who lost their lives in, in, the, in those accidents? And I'm, I'm not suggesting it was just because of the pavement, but now there, there's an awful lot of people, and I've talked to some of them over the last little while, they're thinking, soul. what if? Listen, that's where the betrayal, that's where the shock and awe of this entire process comes to play. Right? I can understand that. And, and yes, could would we have done something different? Of course we would have. That report itself... Uh, made public would have put us in a position to to ensure we took action um but it never got to us at all and and that's the question why and how does it happen that only one person can actually control the flow of such important and vital information and at what point did they make a determination that they that this was not for you guys to see i, I I'm, I'm flabbergasted by that again um Again, that that's that's our angst, right? That that's our frustration. That that's that's where everybody around the table had, uh, uh, like, literally our hearts dropped. It's like it's, it's a it's a betrayal. I, I'm telling you right now, I, especially because I asked directly. It's not like as if we didn't ask the questions. And we were all simply uh, thinking um, for, informally that everything's fine because staff is telling us informally it's fine. No, we formally addressed it. We did our job as a legislative branch. And they failed at the bureaucratic branch and unprecedentedly made an apology to us and by extension the community. That is unprecedented. I don't think you can find another example of it. Sam, you've asked staff to do reports over the many years you've been on council. Uh, and you've been very pointed about, first of all, what you want them to, to investigate. And you've also been very pointed about how soon you like the report back. Uh, and, and, you know, with some flexibility, obviously. Uh, was there any anticipation back in those days that this report was forthcoming? See, we brought forward about, uh, which report are we referring to? The 2015 yeah, report? Yeah, that theory? one. Yeah. No, we brought forward a motion um, saying we need a, a safety audit of the road. So what led to that, even prior to a number of the accidents that were fatal, we were getting anecdotal complaints about the fact that the road was slippery when wet type of scenario. So Collins and, uh, Council Collins and I brought forward an initiative um, to address that issue. And this was one piece of the review that we never saw. And that's, that's the question that's before us is why. Well, and uh, Mr. McKinnon told us it may be weeks uh, before you get those answers. I, that, that's... Uh not good enough for an awful lot of people that are wondering what's going on at this well, stage. Well, we have to listen. We we, ha we have to do this thoroughly, not hastily. And at, at the end of the day, the number one priority at this point: the road safe if it's used as prescribed. And people need to unless it get, unless it gets wet. No, no. If the road safe, even when it's wet, if used as prescribed, the, it becomes a problem when the road is wet, and people don't use the road as prescribed, meaning speed. So speed, the geometry, and the wetness in combination in that section where we decrease it to 80 is the concern. So if you're going 80 kilometers an hour and it's wet, it's fine. 
It, it, uh, they've, I, I asked a question, they gave us the answer. Yes, yes, used as prescribed. Now, not excluding any other variables like someone cutting you off or what have you, but for, with respect to the, the friction issues, the road is safe if used as prescribed because otherwise we would have shut the road down. Exactly. Sam, I know you've got to run and chair a meeting in a couple of minutes. I really appreciate you jumping in and taking some time with us today. Appreciate the time. Thank you, sir. That's uh, Ward 4 Counselor Sam Marula. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his office are under fire uh, in regards to a report that was uh, uh, from the Globe and Mail the other day. And uh, what it alleges in this report is that... Uh, uh, the Attorney General at that time, uh, who of course was Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, had resisted pressure from the Prime Minister's office to issue a directive to shelve some proceedings against SNC-Lavalin Group in favor of a settlement without trial. In other words, pay a fine, not have to go through this stuff. Uh, opposition parties are calling for a, an inquiry into this. Uh, the Prime Minister is denying everything. The allegations reported in the story are false. Uh, at no time did I or uh, my office uh, direct uh, the current or previous Attorney General uh, to make uh, any particular decision in this matter. Carefully crafted response uh, and uh, for the questioning, of course, he just pretty much repeated that. We're going to look at this from a couple of different angles. Uh, first of all, very pleased to welcome back to the program uh, David Aiken, of course, who is the Chief Political Correspondent uh, with Global News. David, thanks for the time today. Appreciate you coming on here. Go Bill ahead. Kelly? I'm here. Okay, great. Sorry. Wonders of technology. Oh, yeah. Just, uh, just to correct a bit, what the Prime Minister, he didn't deny everything yesterday. He just said, he just denied or said something was false that was never said. And let me explain. The Globe and Mail said that there were attempts attempts to um, press Justice Minister Wilson-Raybould to take some action about a this SNC-Lavalin criminal case. And what Trudeau said is, it's false. We never directed her to do that. Well, no one said you directed it, but there was attempts, uh, according to the Globe, that uh, there was attempts to pressure her to essentially give SNC-Lavalin what would amount to a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, SNC-Lavalin is in a lot of legal trouble. Their former execs are still in court with regards to a fraud case stemming from 2015. And the big deal for the company today, its current leadership, is if the company is convicted of this fraud case, it is banned by law from bidding for any federal government contract for 10 years. That would be worth billions to S or could be billions of dollars in losses. For SNC Lavalin, it's one of the country's biggest construction firms. Does a lot of work for the federal government, and uh, and they don't they want want to have access to those contracts, and that's why they have been heavily lobbying uh, pol political operatives in Ottawa, liberal operatives. That's one of the reasons we believe that uh, this special get out of jail free card was put into legislation by the Liberals last year, and yet the public prosecutor of Canada, that's the independent. Um, lawyer who is uh, pursuing this case um, at the end of the day said that she did not feel a what was called a remediation agreement with SNC-Lavalin was appropriate and the suggestion is that at that point Jody Wilson-Raybould was asked uh, influenced pressured you name it to overrule the public prosecutor to say no they can have that remediate remediation agreement she did not do that and Three months later, she shuffled out of justice and over to Veterans Affairs. And on her way out, she publishes a remarkable exit statement in which she alludes to standing up for the independence of the judiciary and speaking truth to power. And when that came out, we all wondered, 
well, what the heck was that all about? Which it well, seems it seemed rather incongruous this is at what the that time. Was all about. Yeah, it just seemed rather incongruous when she issued that report or that that little statement at the end there. And and everybody, I think, as, as you reported that day, David, knew that this was a demotion. So the the question was going around. Well, what did she do? To, obviously, to get into the bad books of the prime minister. And the, the, now, in hindsight, you read that that statement she made, and now in hindsight, in the light of this story, and it's like it's just a, this is an aha moment, isn't it? Uh, you look at it, it, says here, in our democracy, our system of justice has to be free from even the perception of political interference and uphold the highest levels of public confidence. Uh, that sounds like she's talking about a specific incident. It sure does. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people have said, why doesn't she just stand up now and, along with the prime minister, say, oh, this Globe and Mail story, it's, uh, it's false. I was never directed. Well, you know what? It would not be sufficient for her to do that because... The first question any, you know, any reporter is going to have is, okay, fine, but then what the heck were you talking about in that letter? Exactly the, the line you just read, Bill. What, yeah. what was she talking about? And she's never answered those questions. Yesterday, uh, you know, she walked right by reporters, you know, no, no, no comment, no comment, right by reporters into her car. She was in the House of Commons yesterday, and the, the opposition was going pretty hard on this in question period. But she did not get up to answer any questions. All the questions were handled by the current Justice Minister, David Lametti, and he too stuck by the same very careful wording that the Prime Minister himself stuck to when uh, he held a press conference yesterday. Uh, and, and obviously this is the way things go in Ottawa these days. I mean, here's the talking points, you guys all stay on script, and that seemed to be what we were getting yesterday. Did I not hear a clip, though, yesterday, David, of, of Ms. Raybolt simply saying I have nothing to say now? I, I don't think she actually I'm had a. Sh I, she might have been just passing by she, some reporters. She, yeah, uh, she, if, she, if she if she didn't say the now yesterday, she she did. That was the comment initially to the Globe reporters when they phoned her up. But uh, she doesn't. Yeah, now she doesn't. You're right. Whatever it is, now she doesn't. Now here's the one thing, Bill. There's some news on this this morning. Is uh, bright and early at uh, nine fifteen. You know, just about an hour ago uh, here on Parliament Hill, Andrew Shear. Uh, the Conservative opposition leader announced that Conservatives and NDP members of the House of Commons Justice Committee have agreed to have an emergency meeting next week. There was uh, The House was to be uh, on a break week next week. They weren't supposed to be in Ottawa, but they're going to have an emergency meeting next week. And what these opposition MPs on this Justice Committee want to do is they want to hear testimony from Wilson Raybould, from David Lametti, from some senior PMO staffers, including his uh, Trudeau's chief of staff, Katie Telford, and his principal secretary, Gerald Butts, and wants to hear from the public prosecutor and from the clerk of the Privy Council, taking testimony on just what is going on here. They want to get that on the record. And, and as you probably know, Bill, a testimony in front of a, house, a committee of the House of Commons is like testifying at court. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, you can be charged with perjury if you lie. And I think Andrew Scheer made the very good point that if the Liberal MPs on that Justice Committee, and they have the majority so they can control the agenda of the committee, if the Liberal members on that committee refuse this request, well, then it's going to be pretty hard for the Liberals to say there is not a cover-up going on here. I mean, right now, everybody, jurists, judges, former judges are saying, let's have a commission of inquiry. I mean, it's pretty serious stuff, these allegations. Well, and, and the suggestion that, uh, that well, maybe just the ethics commissioner can look into that is, is being poo-hooed by the opposition as well, as you know, David, because uh, we see he was appointed by this government, and they're saying, well, is that going to be an objective review? Yeah, and, and to be honest, I mean, I'll let, I'm, I'm no lawyer, but let me offer a legal <laughs> opinion here. Is, sure. Uh, 
Is is this a, is this an issue for the ethics committee? Yes, I guess it does involve you know issues of ethics. There are some saying that you know there is a potential obstruction of justice here or attempt of obstruction of justice, and really that's more of a matter for the RCMP. Um, again, uh, Andrew Shear this morning was asked about would you complain or file a complaint with uh, with the cops, and uh, you know for for his party, all options are on the table. The first. Uh, the first option that they're pursuing is just getting some answers. Jugmeet Singh, the NDP leader, he, in fact, he's asked the Ethics Commission to look into it. But the Ethics Commissioner has to somehow, you know, he, he's, he's only guided by the Conflict of Interest Act. And so I'm just trying to see, you know, where's the conflict necessarily. But who knows, maybe the Ethics Commissioner will take it upon himself to do something. But there, there's lots of investigative bodies that might want to poke around here. Uh, and a commission of inquiry would be the one that would have the most power. But again, that's the government who's got to call that on itself. Uh, fast developing story, as you have just articulated. Uh, we'll be watching for your updates on Global National tonight, David. Thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you again. No problem. Have a great day, Bill. Cheers. You betcha. David Aiken, of course, Chief Political Correspondent uh, with Global News. And as you say, it just it seems by the hour now, there seems to be a new wrinkle to this. And uh, the government's going to have to respond to uh, Mr. Shear's request, I guess, at this stage. So who are these guys? What is this 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 NSC Lavalone that I want to bring Ian Lee from uh, Sprott School of Business uh, into the conversation. Ian, thanks for the time today. Great you could join us here. My pleasure, Bill. Give us a little inside baseball, if you could, about, uh, about what, what's going on in Ottawa uh, with this huge mega corporation. And, and they're, well, it looks like inf- influence peddling in, at, uh, on, on the hill. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- Lavalin is an engineering company that does turnkey infrastructure projects, and we're not talking little tiny projects. It's one of the major uh, corporations in the world competing with American companies and some other companies. Um, more, I mean, they do infrastructure projects in Canada and in mature Western economies or developed economies, whatever word you want to use. But the, the big opportunities, of course, are in the developing world, what we used to call the third world, partly because there's an awful lot of people there, there's only a billion people in North America and Europe, whereas there's six billion people in the emerging world. And there's an enormous, and I'm saying this because I've taught around the, uh, for the last 30 years in the developing world, uh, there's an enormous number of roads to be built, ports to be built, bridges to be built, etc. And there's just, a, it's just, it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And the problem is, and this is what brings us up to this issue, is that, and I talk about this every year in my class, uh, is that in the developing world, uh, the degree of corruption is far greater. Uh, there's an annual list. Anybody can download it. It's free um, from an, uh, an NGO, a nonprofit, called Transparency International. And it's funded by the United Nations. And it ranks all the countries of the world from the most transparent, least corrupt, to the most corrupt, least transparent. Canada and the other Western countries, Western countries, France, Germany, UK, we're always in the top 10, 20, 30. We're always in the top 10. Sweden and the Scandinavian countries are in the top five. Clean, clean, clean. Even though we may not think we are, we're very clean. It's when you look at the other countries, you know, in, in Africa, in Asia, in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Russia, 
uh, the stands where the corruption is unbelievable. I'm not here to sugarcoat, or I'm just giving you the straight up. Mm -hmm. And in these countries, to get these uh, projects, first off, they're not rule of law, most of these countries. They're often authoritarian dictatorships uh, with deep levels of corruption where the elites, the military elites, the, the, um, the government elites, uh, think of Russia and Putin, uh, are very corrupt. And so for a Western company to get a big project, and we're talking these are projects that can run in the billions of dollars, um, you have to pay bribes. And so, and I've said to my students, you know, you are graduating, because I only teach fourth-year students. They're graduating in literally three, six months. And quite a few of them are going to go out and work for these major multinationals. And you're going to, at some point in your career, be confronted with an existential decision. Do I uh, facilitate and arrange a bribe to get the contract, because I need to keep getting contracts, because that's what I'm paid to do, or, uh, which is illegal under Canadian law and American law, these two countries were the first countries in the world that passed uh, an act called essentially the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act that made it illegal for Canadians to go abroad and pay bribes abroad. We're not talking about paying bribes inside Canada. The same with the Americans. They actually passed the law first. We passed it second. And so it's extraterritoriality. You're working for a Canadian company, but you're selling a contract abroad in uh, Libya. Is that why they're in so much trouble in the courts these days? Yes. What happened was uh, Lavalin was caught paying bribes or arranging, facilitating. I want to be very careful with my language because they often do it through third-party intermediaries. But they were uh, caught, and the CEO uh, pleaded guilty to arranging, facilitating, enabling uh, some bribes to be paid. I believe it was in Libya. And that's illegal under Canadian law. Forget Libyan law. Forget Because in a lot of these countries, they're not going to prosecute this because the elites are the ones who are getting paid off. Sure, sure. So Canada and uh, the U.S., the U.S. passed that law back, I think, in the 70s or 80s. We passed it in the 90s. And, uh, and then I believe the Europeans have also passed similar laws. So what's happened is Lavalin is a crown jewel in Quebec. It is, they have, it's not me saying that, successive premiers, including only two days ago, the premier, the current premier of Quebec, basically tied the government of Quebec to Lavalin's future viability, success, I mean, existence. And uh, it's, they're very proud of it. It's, it's a very, I mean, it's a company, these are jobs, what we call colloquially good jobs. Yeah. They hire well, highly educated people, often engineer types, economists, mathematician types, and they go and do these very complex infrastructure projects like build a very complicated bridge or a brand new airport. You know, that's part of the, these contracts. And as I said, they run into the literally billions of dollars. But Lavalin, the problem is the Western countries, and led by the World Bank, have been cracking down on corruption because there's a study after study showing it hurts the local economy, slows down productivity, slows down economic growth. And, of course, it's very unfair. You don't have a right to a bribe. <laughs> this is a diversion of money to build the bridge into the hands, the pockets of a corrupt individual. And so Lavalin got caught, and the consequences now are devastating because under Canadian law, they'll be banned from uh, getting any government contracts for 10 years. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm not a corporate lawyer, but I believe the World Bank will respect that judgment, and they'll probably be banned from uh, international contracts as well, which could literally put the company out of business and the thousands and thousands of uh, people that they employ. Ian, thanks so much for the update on this. Uh, it's just uh, This is cloak and dagger stuff, and it's uh, fascinating yeah. to get your perspective. Appreciate the time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business, of course, at uh, 
Carleton University. Uh, there's, as I say, a different twist and turn to this, and where this is going to go politically is is a big, big question. Uh, obviously, from a legal standpoint, a lot of questions have to be asked. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We uh, continue our coverage of the... Uh, well, the Prime Minister's office and the uh, allegations made yesterday in a Globe and Mail article that uh, is really starting to get some legs, as they say in the business. Uh, obviously, there was pushback from the PMO and from the Prime Minister himself yesterday. He uh, commented, and we uh, played you a clip from that just a couple of minutes ago. But uh, opposition parties, of course, are calling for some kind of an explanation and investigation. It's up to the Prime Minister to come clean on this. And when he sticks to a very carefully scripted, legalistic answer, refusing to answer follow-up questions, just returning to uh, a very carefully prepared line, it certainly sounds to me that uh, those are not the words of the Prime Minister. Those are the words of people with legal expertise advising him what to say. Opposition leader Andrew Scheer uh, yesterday outside the Commons, and as you might have expected, question period was rather raucous uh, yesterday, uh, going back and forth. Uh, you just heard, uh, well, some breaking news from David Aiken, of course, uh, senior correspondent of Global News, was on our program just a couple of minutes ago, that uh, Mr. Scheer and uh, Jagmeet Singh, the uh, leader of the NDP, and the, of course the leader of the NDP in the caucus uh, in Ottawa, are, as- are asking the Justice Committee to meet next week. It was supposed to be a dark week at uh, Ottawa, but apparently they want to come back, and they want to bring a lot of folks in, and they need to get some answers. I'm not sure if that's the best way to go. How do we do an investigation? Who should do this? Well, uh, Democracy Watch has come up with an idea. Duff Conacher of Democracy Watch uh, is joining us now, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Duff, thank you for the time on a very busy day. Appreciate you coming on today. My pleasure. Uh, let's, I'll, I'll talk about the press release here, and, and I guess this is one of the concerns I think that Mr. Shear uh, referenced yesterday and a number of other people, and the, but the, the social media is just rife right now with legal opinions from everybody who is a, a lawyer or thinks they're a lawyer. You are a lawyer, so give us your read on, on what should happen here. Yeah, just to clarify, I, I do have a law degree and I'm doing my Ph.D. in law, but I do not practice law. I, and I teach law at the University of Ottawa. Um, so that's just a distinction. I'm not actually a lawyer. You have to be a member of the, of the bar. Yeah. Of the bar, and I'm, I'm not uh, a member of the bar. Uh, but I have been looking at these issues for 25 years. And um, there is a, uh, a way to go in terms of an investigation. It's not um, uh, that the federal ethics commissioner should investigate because we have an issue with the current federal ethics commissioner, um, but uh, that uh, it is a violation in Democracy Watch's opinion of the Conflict of Interest Act. It's a clear provision, Section 9, that says you cannot even attempt to influence another person's decision that would, if you were improperly furthering your own interests or the interests of uh, another person, which includes uh, corporations, and uh, if someone from the PMO did try to influence the Attorney General's decision, uh, which was a decision not to intervene and stop the prosecution of SNC-Lavalin, then that person at the PMO, and Democracy's opinion, violated Section 9 of the Conflict Interest Act. The Ethics Commissioner enforces that section, but the problem with the Ethics Commissioner currently is that he was handpicked by the Trudeau Cabinet in a, a secretive process that failed to consult with opposition parties as required by a federal law before making the appointment, and they essentially picked him, gave the opposition parties a few days to, to give their thoughts on uh, the current ethics commissioner, Mario Dion, and, but the Trudeau cabinet was essentially saying, we're going to appoint this guy no matter what you say, and you give, we'll give you uh, a week to tell us what you think, but he's going to be appointed no matter what. And that's not consultation, that's dictation. So he's essentially been handpicked by the Trudeau cabinet, and 
in our opinion, makes him uh, that there's an appearance of bias because they handpicked him through a very secretive process. Let me roll back just a second, Duff. I'd like to get your uh, opinion about exactly what's being alleged in the Globe and Mail article, because I know I've seen some responses over the last couple of hours that said just, oh, look, come on, that's lobbying. That goes on all the time in Ottawa, Washington, and every place else. This uh, this is taking it to a new level, and there's, this is not just unethical. This is illegal, isn't it? Uh, in terms of uh, the actions by the PMO. Yeah, well, alleged actions, I guess, at this point. Yes, Uh Yes, it's illegal in terms of violation of the Conflict of Interest Act, and um, possibly uh, also uh, could be viewed as uh, obstruction of justice. And um, it's obstruction of justice under the Criminal Code applies to uh, the course of justice in a judicial proceeding. Okay, and a judicial proceeding uh, is something that is before the courts. And the question would be, um, given that the Attorney General can actually intervene and stop the prosecution uh, under the law that, that is uh, set up with our uh, independent public prosecution service, just has to do so publicly, the question is whether it would cross that standard of uh, the, the, the criminal code provision of obstructing justice. But in Mark Swetch's opinion, it's definitely a violation of Section 9 of the Conflict of Interest Act if anyone at the PMO in any way tried to influence and change the Attorney General's decision. As I was just talking about with uh, David Aiken from Global News a little while ago, Duff, uh, you know, when when Ms. Raybolt was, uh, well, they say demoted, of course, on the cabinet shuffle a few weeks ago, you may recall, of course, that uh, she issued a statement not too long after that that a lot of people kind of looked at and said, well, what's this got to do with, with the, the cabinet? It's, it looks a lot clearer. Now, again, we, we, this is all alleged. These are just uh, charges in the Globe and Mail article. But she writes stuff on here about, in our democracy, our system of justice has to be free from even the perception of political interference and uphold the highest levels of public confidence. Uh, given the story in the Globe and Mail yesterday, this little statement that she issued that day takes on a great deal of significance. Yes, it does. It does. And uh, um, lots of people are pointing to it, and it, it is a, a question as to why she would have that. In a, uh, First of all, it's unusual for a minister even to issue a statement yeah. when they are changed uh, portfolios. Um, and she hinted at another issue that she thought was at play was, was her statements on the government not really moving forward with reconciliation with indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was an unusual statement in the first place. And, it, yeah, it's a question, why would you mention that unless there was some other issue as well? And this seems plausible that this could be the issue. In terms of the opposition parties, what David Aiken's reporting, the opposition parties calling for the Justice Committee to look into this, that's a bad idea. Uh, Justice Committee is made of politicians. Politicians should never judge other politicians. Of course, they want it. The opposition parties want it because the media will be there and it will give them a chance to be questioning officials from the PMO. But it's a kangaroo court by definition because it's politicians judging other politicians and questioning them and judging political staff, uh, the staff of ministers, the staff in the PMO, and when they do that, they, their questions are all based on politics, not based on evidence or the law. And no matter how, how um, objective they may try to be in the questions that they ask, 
they're a partisan politician asking the question, and so it's always tainted by that partisanship. So much better in these situations. Uh, the Democrats are facing the same thing in the U.S. with Trump. Mm-hmm. Let the prosecutors, let the people who have independence do the job of investigating. Do not try investigate each other. It's, it's a kangaroo court. And we've seen this time and time again, yeah, yeah. You know, the judicial hearings uh, you have to do with Kavanaugh down there a few months ago, and even the stuff that they've had over the last little while, and, and even the, the Hans Schreiber stuff in Ottawa a few weeks ago. It, it, even if they're trying to be objective with their question, it's usually preceded by a partisan rant about something. And, and yeah, the, and then you see the liberals ask very soft questions because they're liberals, and it's their prime minister who's on the hot seat or a staff from the prime minister's office. Others are calling for a commission of inquiry, uh, that would be a public inquiry. The ethics commissioner does investigate in private. Um, the The problem with the commission of inquiry is similar to the ethics commissioner in the current situation. The prime minister would appoint the commissioner. Well, then the prime minister is choosing the judge. Sure. And, of course, they usually try and choose people that others view as objective, but it still taints the process. It would be a public inquiry. That's not necessary uh, in short, in, to have a good investigation. The ethics commissioner investigates in private. Um, the problem really is we don't have fully independent people to investigate these situations at all. The, the prime minister chooses the ethics commissioner, chooses the lobbying commissioner, the information commissioner, all of whom enforce laws that apply to the prime minister and cabinet ministers. And when, if someone calls for a public inquiry, then the prime minister chooses the person to do the inquiry. So we need a different appointments process so we actually have independent investigators. Of course, uh, 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 and to give an example, people are calling uh, and saying uh, this, this seems like obstruction of justice if this actually happened. The RCMP should investigate. The, the uh, liberals actually used a different process for appointing the new commissioner of the RCMP for the first time. The, the prime minister can choose the RCMP commissioner without anyone else intervening, but they actually set up a committee, and a majority of the people on the committee that were searching for candidates came from outside the government. And that's the system that should be used for all appointments. It's used for mm-hmm. appointing provincial court judges in Ontario. There's a committee with a majority of members who are not chosen by the Ontario uh, government, by the attorney general in Ontario. And they are, and they recommend uh, a short list of people, and and then the government makes the final choice from the short list. But that's what we need for appointments of these people. We do not have real watchdogs, and across the country, B, uh, BC has the best system. It actually has an all-party committee choose the the good government watchdogs out there. But even then, you have politicians choosing their own judges. Like the the ethics commissioner out there enforces rules that apply to all the the politicians in BC and so they all have an incentive to choose a lapdog and we need independent appointment processes for all these people as as strong as the appointment processes are for judges in Ontario to ensure that we actually have real watchdogs who are not tainted by partisanship in any way on the issue of the RCMP investigation, if in fact they decided to go that way, is there enough public confidence? I mean, the RCMP has uh, not shone very brightly with some of the investigations they've done in the past. There's been accusations about partisanship there, too. It's true. Uh, the the biggest one being why was Mike Duffy charged, yeah. the senator, and not Nigel Wright, the prime minister's chief of staff, in a situation where 
in order to Mike, for Mike Duffy to have been guilty, he was guilty of accepting a bribe, so therefore Nigel Wright must have been guilty in giving the bribe. Uh, and only Mike Duffy was charged. And uh, there is a new commissioner, though. The previous commissioner was chosen by Prime Minister Harper without any independent selection committee uh, putting up candidates for him. Um, and so I, we do have a better system now. This this uh, committee, made up of a majority of people from outside the Liberal government and without ties to the Liberal cabinet, were the ones that came up with the uh, short list of candidates that they sent to the Prime Minister in terms of choosing the RCMP commissioner. Hopefully things would be cleaned up there. Even for you to ask that question, though, shows how bad the system is, right? Yeah. We can't even trust the police to be uh, enforcing the law uh, properly, no matter who is uh, alleged to have violated the law. We do not have a rule of law. And if we don't have a rule of law, and what a rule of law means as a technical term is that no matter who you are, if you violate the law, you're charged and prosecuted and penalized the same as anyone else, even if you're the prime minister. If we don't have a rule of law, we don't have a democracy. And it's very much in question because of the lack of independence of all sorts of enforcement agencies, including the ethics commissioner, lobbying commissioner, any inquiry commissioner that might be appointed. The, the ruling party gets to choose their own judges. And that appointment system has to change. As, and this example shows it yet again, uh, that it's so difficult to get an independent investigation of these kind of allegations because of the lack of independence of watchdogs. They're all lapdogs in the way that they are chosen by the people they're supposed to be investigating and judging. Some people are looking to the South again, uh, to the Mueller investigation, and say, we need a guy like that, somebody like that to do this. We, we don't have that position, a, a special prosecutor. I mean, it's, again, it seems to be... They do have it in some of the provinces, but guess who chooses a special prosecutor? Like, B.C. has it, Ontario has it. The attorney general from the ruling party cabinet chooses the special prosecutor. And again, they try and choose someone that people don't, won't howl about, but they just shouldn't be able to choose yeah. when... And the reason they appoint them is because it's sensitive and a politician's involved from the government or from an opposition party, and, and the attorney general should not really be handling those things. The public prosecution service was set up by uh, Harper and established by the Harper Conservatives in 2006 to uh, remove the attorney general, who is a politician, from uh, being able to influence prosecution decisions, and that's what this whole case is about. But when you set up a special prosecutor, the attorney general would be choosing that person. And that's not, that person is not more independent than the public prosecution service. Even the public prosecution service, a um, majority of the people on the committee that chooses the, the head of the public prosecution service, uh, who's in the news in this story, um, is uh, made up of ruling party representatives. You just cannot have these people chosen by the ruling party because they obviously have an incentive. It, it just taints every person that's chosen that way because people think, well, they seem like a good person, but look, they were chosen by the people they judge and the people they investigate. Well, that goes back to, that to Wilson. Yeah, go back to Wilson Raybould's statement here. It's it's not whether or not it, it it's the perception. Of, exactly. Of, even even if they made the person may be crystal clear, but it's the perception, and, the, that's, and that, right. that's that's the reality. People may have heard the uh, the saying, "Justice must be seen to be done." Yep. That's actually a short form of the actual quote from the ruling that that made this very clear. The actual quote is, "Justice must be manifestly and undoubtedly seen to be done." You can't have even a shadow of a doubt, an appearance of bias, 
And unfortunately, our whole system is tainted because of how these people are appointed. So I can say, actually, I do not believe there will be a fully independent investigation of this situation or any other allegation that's made about any ruling party, uh, uh, cabinet minister, staff, or, or, or uh, appointed government official anywhere in Canada. Because across the board, the appointment systems allow for the ruling party to choose their own investigators and judges. And that's what has to change systemically. In this situation, the best we can do is we, we've called on the ethics commissioner to delegate the investigation to a provincial ethics commissioner who has no ties to any federal party. And uh, I hope the ethics commissioner takes this request seriously because he was chosen but through a secretive process, handpicked by the Trudeau cabinet, and he should not be the one investigating the situation as to whether there was a violation of the Conflict of Interest Act. It should be a provincial ethics commissioner who's totally removed from the federal parties. Makes all kinds of sense. Uh, we'll see what happens with yes, this. And, and, and we talked about this from the legal standpoint in our conversation here, Duff. But I, I guess the other thing that I find worrisome, I've got about a minute left here, is this is going to turn into a political sideshow one way or another. Well, the questions will remain. Um, we'll see how thorough the investigation is. Uh, if you know any investigator of this, uh, whether it's the ethics commissioner himself or he does delegate it to a provincial commissioner, they should be uh, subpoenaed, and they, they have the power to subpoena uh, all the records. That's why you don't necessarily need a, a public inquiry commission to set up, because the ethics commissioner himself can subpoena records, subpoena evidence, force people to come and answer questions. Uh, and he should be looking, asking for the Blackberries of everyone involved and all of their PIN messages and all their emails and telephone log records. Uh, and you have to look at all of those things. You can't just ask people, did you call the Attorney General? You have to investigate thoroughly, and that means looking at all those communications to determine, okay, you did call the Attorney General on this day, what did you talk about? And then talk to the former Attorney General, Jody Raybould, and say, okay, you you took a call that day from this person in the PMO, what did you talk about? And look at all the emails and every other possible uh, way of communicating with her to determine whether anyone did try to influence her decision. That's the kind of thorough investigation that's needed. Exactly. Duff, thanks as always. Appreciate the time. My pleasure. Duff Conacher from uh, Democracy Watch. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.